Well, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, I don't miss the creaky stage, and I think I can still see everybody all right. So thank you for being here. Thank you for gathering uh, to worship the Lord. We're in our summer series on the Psalms, and this summer we're focusing specifically on some of the Psalms that talk about God as our rock. And what does that mean? One of the most important aspects of God being our rock, of course, is that, as we've been talking about, God is strong. And God provides strength to his people. That's not the only quality that rock illustrates for us, but it's one of the main ones. It's one of the ones we go to most naturally, of course. And we talked about this last week, and Dan talked about it this week, even in our children's moment last week. You might remember I I had a sizable rock and a roughly the same size wadded up ball of paper. And when we stepped on the paper, it squashed down flat and the rock didn't. Pretty good illustration about how the Lord is strong versus some of the other things that we might be tempted to put our trust in. But what does it mean to be strong exactly? As we saw last week and as we're going to continue to see this week, for King David, strength primarily had to do with military strength in battle, military might. That might not be the world that we live in personally, and we might think that's not the world that we live in today. But I I also want to push back against that a little bit, the idea of strength in those kind of terms might be more relevant than we think, too. Uh, You know, physical strength. Think of professional sports. Physical strength, and even sometimes the, the violence that goes along with professional sports still looms large in our culture. Just think even of our beloved Saskatchewan Rough Riders, right? There's Thaddeus Coleman plays right tackle for the Riders, his stats sheet says he's six foot seven and weighs 320 pounds. Now, that's, that's a big man. That's a strong man. That, and that's kind of the point, right? That's why you have two opposing lines and they try to run through each other. The bigger and stronger you are, the better chance you'll stop the other team getting through. And there's something kind of primally exciting when you see those guys line up and collide. And, and in a, a lot of ways, it is very similar to how battles were fought for thousands of years. Uh, we just call it a sport now. But th- the appeal of that, I think, is still, is still something very primal and deep within us. But what does it mean to be strong in the strength that the Lord provides, given that most of us aren't going to be facing opponents that we will fight physically? Sometimes maybe it would seem easier if we could do that, but that's, for the most part, not the world we live in. We'll turn to the second half of Psalm 18. We did the first half last week. We'll do the second half today, and and we'll spend some time unpacking that before we return to the question. So I'd invite you to stand, as our practice typically is for our sermon passage. Psalm 18. Beginning at verse 31. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. 
I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not deliver them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is God's word. You can have a seat. So we're confronted in our text today, at the start of it, with two important questions. Who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock but our God? It's probably fair to say that these are rhetorical questions. That is, they're a question that's meant to provoke a certain response, rather than questions that are actually seeking information. In, in, it's probably fair to say, though, that these aren't redundant questions all the same, though. So we typically characterize the ancient world as polytheistic. That is, people worshipped lots of different gods in the ancient world. Uh, there were, sometimes these gods were personified as natural forces or, or objects, right? So we had river gods and storm gods and crop gods and all of those kind of things. And then in, in other situations, sometimes these specific different deities uh, became prominent for groups of people. And so you had different nations and cultures around the ancient world that worshipped different gods, right? Like Horus and Osiris and Baal and Asherah and all the ones we read about. It's, of course, an oversimplistic understanding. But these gods functioned all more or less in the same kind of ways, though. Different names, though, they had and different areas of nature that they were supposedly in control of. So three things. The, the stories of these gods, the mythology surrounding them, provided sort of a basic framework and worldview of reality for the people that worshipped them. Second, typically these gods were worshipped by making sacrifices to them. And third, people made sacrifices to these gods in order to try to obtain success, usually agricultural success and success in warfare. And we kind of nod and agree, right? Yeah, polytheism, nature, yeah, storm gods, we get that, fertility religions and so forth. But let's not, let's not deceive ourselves. As Dan even said earlier, there, there's still a real sense in which there are all kinds of deities on offer in the world today. And, and we can deceive ourselves, right? We can think that we're very sophisticated, but in trying to be very sophisticated, we can be actually quite naive to that fact. The ancient world was polytheistic in a religious sense. The modern world, at least the modern Western world, is polytheistic in a secular sense. We still have fundamental mythologies that people turn to in order to try to provide meaning for their lives. We might not call them deities. We might not make blood sacrifices to them. But we still have these fundamental stories. 
uh, often surrounding wealth or success or those sorts of things. And while we may not sacrifice the blood of animals to them, we do still make a lot of sacrifices to the things that we believe will give our lives meaning. Friends, anything we turn to in order to provide some kind of fundamental meaning in our lives and in order to find success, those things are in some sense a God to us. And anything we're willing to sacrifice for, those things show where our true priority lies. Because sacrifice is one of the most ancient forms of worship that there is. And we're still doing that, even if we don't call the things we sacrifice to gods or deities. And so just like Israel getting drawn into worshiping the other deities around them, Baal and Asherah and all the rest of the surrounding nations, we can be tempted to trust in and worship the modern deities of of wealth, popularity, consumerism, talent, and so forth. There are many other claims to deity on offer throughout the world. And it remains an open question whether we're going to stay faithful to the Lord and worship him alone Or, like ancient Israel kept doing, are we going to be drawn away and tempted to worship some of these other deities? That's why these questions, particularly the second one, are important and what they're getting at. Who is a rock except our God, right? What things out there on offer are actually going to prove strong enough to stand on and reliable when difficulties come? Are these other things going to prove that? Or only the Lord? From verses 32 to 42, we get a number of examples in which King David points to the Lord's strength. And of course, there's poetic imagery here, just like there was in in the first half of the psalm. But the point should be clear. The Lord showed himself strong in David's life in terms of military strength and in battle. The first few uh, verses of this section describe how the Lord strengthened him, and then the following verses describe what that actually looked like and what happened. So verse 32, the Lord equipped him with strength. The Hebrew word here frequently has to do with uh, putting on clothes or armor for battle. That's a different word in that story, but it's hard not to think of the episode when Saul offered uh, David his royal armor to go out and fight Goliath. And David didn't take it. He was trusting in the Lord to protect him. Verse 33 says the the Lord gave him feet like a deer. The Lord enabled him, the image would say, to, to run fast, to outrun his enemies or to pursue them. It's easy to think here of those years of David's life where he was on the run from Saul living as an outlaw in the mountains, fleeing for his life many times. Verse 34 Uh, The Lord gave him arms that could bend a bow of bronze. Again, that's probably poetic imagery, but anybody who has used a bow for for just target shooting or for hunting knows that the the stronger a bow gets, the harder the bow is to pull, right? You go from like the little 8, 16, 20-pounders that you shoot at camp to big like 60, 75-pounders that you use for hunting deer. And David's equipped by the Lord to pull the most strong and deadly bow to fight his enemies. And then, after this, we, we get to hear about the results. This is where it maybe gets a little uncomfortable for some people, because the results here look like total annihilation of his enemies. Verse 37, he pursued them, he overtook them, he consumed them. David routed his enemies, and none escaped. This, this was kind of back when take no prisoners was still a, a legitimate form of fighting a battle. 
Verse 38 and 39, he thrust them through. They sank down. Again, none, nobody escaped David and his forces. The defeat was total. They turned their backs. I destroyed them. Sometimes in warfare, it's sufficient to declare victory if the enemy surrenders. But in this case, uh, again, it was total annihilation. They were destroyed completely. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. In contrast to David's crying out to the Lord and being heard, his enemies were not heard. And there were times in David's life when, unfortunately, his enemies were other Israelites who may have cried to the Lord. Uh, Maybe even some of the pagan nations got so desperate that they tried crying out to the Lord too. But in any case, the Lord heard David and was with him and was not with his enemies. And we might begin to think that David is, is or was somewhat of a kind of bloodthirsty killer, just ex- obsessed with battle and killing. And again, these are violent images. And, and not just violent in a warfare context. Like these are kind of violent in a way that wouldn't even be acceptable in a, in a modern warfare context. Like pursuing people who've turned their back to you in retreat and killing them. There's something r- very violent. So what do we do with that? I appreciate how verse 43 begins. Uh, You delivered me from strife with the people. David praises the Lord, not just that the Lord delivered his enemies into his hands, but that there came a point when he was delivered from having to fight these wars altogether. If you want to flip over to 2 Samuel 7, you can do that. Uh, There are some things in that chapter that really do help us to understand what's going on here. That chapter really represents the high point in King David's life. It's a long chapter, so we, we won't read it all, but I'll go over the important parts of what happens. So it begins by saying, there came this time when the Lord delivered David from all of his enemies and from warfare and from violence, and, and things were good. There was a season of peace. And so in this season of peace, uh, the Lord well, David and Nathan, his trusted prophet advisor, are discussing what, what's going to happen. And David has this idea that he's going to build a house that is a temple to the Lord. And Nathan the prophet says, oh, that sounds like a great idea, David. Do, do whatever is on your heart. And then Nathan goes home and the Lord speaks to Nathan in a vision and says, you've got to go tell David the temple thing is, a, is no deal. Uh, you see, what's going to happen is David wants to build the Lord a house in terms of a building. But what is actually going to happen is the Lord wants to build King David a house. A house in terms of a family line or a ruling dynasty. And so Nathan the prophet goes back and communicates this to David. But all that to say, you see what happens here is that David had to go through this season of of warfare and battles in order for the Lord to bring him to this season that turned out to be the high point in his life when the Lord made these promises to him that he would have this, not just a, a ruling dynasty, but even an eternal family line. And of course, we can look back on that and see the messianic promise contained in that because that ruling dynasty was the family line from whom the Lord Jesus came. So you see what happened here. It it was all necessary preparation to get him to that high point in his life. The, The warfare, the violence, that wasn't an end in itself, but a necessary, although unpleasant, pathway the Lord had to take him on to get there. But here's where it gets really interesting. 
we can have no doubts from this psalm and from many other passages that the Lord was absolutely fighting for David, giving him strength, helping him to overcome his enemies. And yet at the same time, we can't just say that this was an unqualified good either. Again, if you want to flip over to 1 Chronicles 22, starting at around verse 6, we have some of David's final instructions to his son Solomon. In other words, this fits in well with the context of Psalm 18, uh, because that seems to have come at the end of David's life. And in this passage in Chronicles, David elaborates more on why it was that the Lord didn't want him building a temple. And the answer he gives to his son Solomon is because he had lived a violent life of warfare and battles and had blood on his hands, and so Solomon would be a man of peace. That's what his name means. And he would be the one to build the temple to the Lord. And this kind of blows my mind. That on the one hand, we can say that the Lord empowered David to fight these battles. But on the other, you were a man of violence, David. And and it's not suitable that you raise this temple. And we can argue, yeah, the book of Chronicles always presents a more favorable picture of David. And even of some of the bad kings than than Samuel and kings does. But again, we've got to take scripture as a whole here. And see what it's saying. An elderly David was able to affirm both that the Lord fought for him and helped him to win those battles, but also to say that even though the Lord strengthened his hands for the fight, his hands still had blood on them at the end of the day. They weren't unqualified goods in and of themselves. There were consequences. David concludes with a benediction, verses 46 to 50 through to the end there. The Lord lives, it's actually a a Hebrew construction, it's typically used in oaths where we get as the Lord lives and then somebody takes an oath using that format. So David's not exactly taking an oath here, but he's doing something kind of similar. He's saying that, that this is a true and trustworthy statement I'm about to make. We should take this statement very seriously. He's answering the questions he posed at the beginning of this section, back in verse 31. Who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? No one is God except the Lord. No one is a rock except God. Because the Lord, unlike all those other deities, or supposed deities, is the only one who actually is alive, who actually lives, who actually delivers his people, the only one who is mighty to save. He alone is God. He alone was David's rock and God. He alone is our rock and our God. He alone is worthy of our praise. But what do we do with this? As I said, most of us are not going to literally go out and fight actual enemies the way that King David did. So what does it mean to be strengthened in the Lord's strength for us when it's going to look so different than what happened with David? Well, we ended our sermon last week by emphasizing the fact that probably the dominant picture of strength in the New Testament is is exactly what we were singing about earlier, that the Lord raised Jesus from the dead. St. Paul prays in, in Ephesians chapter 1, 19 and 20 that Christians would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
So whatever it means to be strengthened in the Lord's strength for us as Christians, that's where it starts. It starts with the Lord raising up Jesus from the dead. It starts there, but it continues on. Romans 8, 11, Paul makes another crucial statement. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then in Ephesians 6, some of the verses we heard read earlier. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There, there's an important answer to that question. But rather we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So where am I getting with all this? It's a lot to kind of keep our brains on. We've gone here and there and all over the place. But what am I getting at? The New Testament continues to testify that the Lord strengthens his people. However, it redefines what the nature of that strength looks like because it redefines what our primary enemies are. Paul affirms that the Lord does equip or clothe us for battle, just like David was talking about in in our psalm. However, Paul insists that while there's every bit the same need, maybe more, for strength, for standing in the might that the Lord provides, our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemies are not others that we fight against the way David did. Rather, they are spiritual forces of evil, behind which, of course, lie the two great enemies of sin and death. If we want to see what the Lord's strength looks like, we just have to look at what Jesus did for us. In his death and resurrection, he defeated those two great enemies of sin and death. He defeated sin so that even in this life that we live in that has its hardships, that we struggle through, that we sometimes feel like we're doing well and sometimes we feel like we're just fighting a hopeless battle, But we can see the power over sin in our lives broken. And we can begin to walk in obedience to Christ. Not perfectly, but in his grace and in his strength and power better and better as we continue to walk more faithfully with him. As we keep in step with his spirit. And he defeated death. So that on that great day when Jesus Christ makes all things new as his word promises, and as we were singing about this morning, we will rise and we will have life eternal with him. So friends, we have to, we have to keep these great truths central if we're going to have a proper perspective on any of the other things we're going to face in life. Right? Any of the other crises we face, any other hardships we face, we have to face them in the context that Christ has already done the work of defeating our greatest enemies and our greatest problems. As we close, let's just bounce back to that Ephesians 6 passage. Last week we talked a bit about how we can be assured that God is strong for us and he's a rock for us in whatever crises we face, health concerns, financial problems, grief, any of those things. Because he's already taken care of our far worse problems of sin and death, alienation from God, our Heavenly Father. But today, I think it would be good to remember that God is our rock, not just in times of crisis, 
That can be a real temptation that we're going along living the rest of our lives assuming that, well, we can kind of do okay most of the time and then when something bad happens, oh Lord, now we need you to be our rock. We need that strength in every day-to-day situation as well. I, I, I really appreciate that Roger actually read the, the bit that came before the armor of God passage hadn't really made that connection there. I think that was, that was great, though, because the passage before is talking about families. It's talking about your work life. And then we get this armor of God stuff. I, I don't think those are maybe as separate as I've often considered them to be before and as maybe we typically do, right? We need God's strength, the armor he provides in the day-to-day living of our lives, in our work lives, in our family lives, in things that we typically might think of as, as very mundane. But look at what Paul does say in that armor of God part in 6.13. He says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, put it on, clothe yourself with it, as David said, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's just draw this out as sort of a final thought. Don't wait until the evil day, until strong temptation comes or crisis comes or something hits you that you weren't expecting and just sends you, sends you off for a loop, kind of spiritually speaking. Get it on now. Start doing that day by day. Live in the strength the Lord provides day by day so that when, not if, but when, some crisis comes, something happens that you weren't expecting, something that seems way too big for you to handle, then you're prepared. Then you are used to living in the strength the Lord provides. He's been growing that strength in you, making you stronger. The Lord is absolutely 100% there for us in times of crisis. And I want us all to know that and remember that. But let's not wait until a crisis happens in order to start living in the strength that the Lord provides, in order to start standing firm in that strength, putting on the strength That he gives us. The strength the Lord provides, one for us in Christ, present to us in the Holy Spirit, is available to us right now. Whether we're facing a major crisis or test of our faith, whether we're just facing the the daily grind of living and trying to stay faithful day to day as we raise our families, as we work at our jobs, we have his promise of strength. Who is God but the Lord? No one. He is God alone. Who is a rock but our God? No one. Only he is reliable fully. Only he has demonstrated it completely. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our strong rock. And that you are strong for us in ways that so many other things cannot be and never will be. And Lord, we confess that we are all tempted and prone to trusting in so many other things that are around us. And we ask in your mercy and your grace that you would strengthen us, that we would see that you alone are reliable, that your strength alone is sufficient for the needs that we have. And we thank you, Lord, that you have demonstrated that strength supremely 
in the work of Jesus, as we read in your word about the great might you demonstrated when you raised our Savior from the dead and seated him at your right hand, Father. And we know that we, we face difficulties in life, even hard, hard things, crises of all sorts. But as we remember what you have already done for us, may it put all of those things in their proper perspective. And Lord, we ask today that as we go from here and as we seek to live in the strength that you provide, that we would clothe ourselves, allow you to clothe us in that that mystery of how we work and how you work for us, that we would see that happening as a reality in our lives, not just when a crisis comes our way, but day by day in the walking with you, in the building our strength and our Christian character and, and the likeness to our Savior that you desire for us. So will you give us that as a good gift? We call to you as David did. Will you strengthen us for whatever it is that we face through Christ our Lord and for your glory? Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?